All right. <clears throat> Three, two, one. This is the Two Tall Jews Show. We are the Two Tall Jews. Today is July 5th, 2020, and we are ready to go. On today's show, we're going to go over our post of today, Jerry Seinfeld's famous Seinfeld show. We're going to talk about the UN's latest antics in Israel. We're going to continue our conversation on annexation. We're going to talk about Jews and sports. We're going to have a debate about America's aid to Israel and everyone's favorite, Bubby's Delight. Safe to say, it's a jam-packed show. My name is Mayor Grumberg. And I'm Isaac Simon. And this is... On the Stay in Jewish History. No, the Two Tall Jews Show. <laughs> We're keeping that in. And now we're on to Honest Day in Jewish History Rundown, where we go a little bit deeper into our post of today. Today's post was talking about the airing of the first episode of the Seinfeld Chronicles, or better known as just Seinfeld. I had the pleasure of writing today's post, and it was very fun. I'm not going to lie. I'm a huge Seinfeld fan. For a very long time, all I knew was memes and just uh, like random moments and just classic scenes. And then about a year ago, two years ago, actually, I sat down and over a span of like a month and a half, I watched the entire thing and it was the greatest decision ever made. It's incredible how the show hasn't aged, how, you know, even 20 years after the fact, 30 years now after the fact, we're still talking about it. It's still as impacting and it really shaped the way that comedy is on TV. It led to what we now know as Kirby Enthusiasm. It made Larry David, it essentially made Jerry Seinfeld, even though he could have probably made it without his show. But it's safe to say that it was a very fun post to write about. It's a good thing we have Isaac on here, because Isaac is known as the number one fan. Jerry doesn't know this, Larry doesn't know this, but we're going to let Isaac talk about his favorite scenes. Whatever. It's funny you brought that up, Mary, because I was just on a three-way call with David and Seinfeld, and they said, you know what, Isaac, you're probably our biggest fan, but by far our tallest fan, the undisputed tallest fan of Seinfeld. So I have a favorite episode of Seinfeld, and I, as I assume all Seinfeld lovers do, and my favorite episode ha happens to come from season, has, happens to be season seven, episode 20, titled Calzone, specifically... The reason why this episode is so great is the scene in which George Costanza is walking into the pizzeria to get the calzones and he's, I don't know, he's kibitzing or he's going back and forth, a nice playful back and forth with the, his fellow Italian brother on the other end of the counter. And he proceeds to put a dollar in the tip jar. But the guy behind the counter is preoccupied and doesn't see it. And George picks up on this. And so he, take, he proceeds to go and take <laughs> the dollar out of the tip jar. And of course, that's when the guy looks okay. and he throws the book at him. And that sort of exchange, I think, you can tell me if you disagree, is the perfect, uh, it's the per it's the it's the scene that best exemplifies the nature of what Seinfeld was and Seinfeld's, the brilliance of the show. I mean, yeah, it personifies the, the random coincidence, the, oh, you didn't see it, so now I have to make sure you see it. And then right when you look, that's when you make the wrong conclusion. And then George is always on the wrong end of, of the thing. 
whatever the thing is. And, and I, I was actually wondering if you could go a little bit deeper into this. A lot of people say, oh, George is Larry, right? Like George, the, the George, Constanza, George Constanza character is Larry David. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and explain what that means as a, as a close confidant of, of Larry, oh, sorry, of David, as you call him? So when David and Seinfeld were creating the show and they were assembling the characters and it became apparent that Seinfeld was going to play a fictionalized version of himself, David, who makes a couple of appearances throughout the show, A, in addition to voicing uh, the George Steinbrenner character, acts as Costanza's lawyer, in certain relevant episodes. Anyway, it was decided that David's ethos should be part of the show and, and should come in the form of one of, of one of the main characters. Now, as someone who is a fan of Costanza and understands the similarities in sort of demeanor and delivery, it's by no means um, a straight comparison, or at least I don't interpret it to be a straight comparison. And one of the reasons why I say that is because, as you mentioned, David went on to go do Curb. The Larry David that we see in Curb, I don't find bears a particularly strong resemblance to Costanza from Seinfeld. Right. But I mean, in the in the reunion episodes, you have that scene with Larry talking to George, and it's almost like the same person are talking. It's like they made a joke on they, they sort of, they sort of make that joke where it's like, like we're saying the same thing, and it's because we're the same person. Yeah, and that joke was speaking to a larger discussion, and I think sought to sort of humorously validate the comparison by exploiting it through Curb. Now. What I do want to mention is that the actor that plays George Costanza, Jason Alexander, took over for Larry David on Broadway a couple of years back in the role that he played. So, so that even adds, and they had a very funny back and forth at the Tony Awards mm. a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't yeah. imagine what a, what a dinner with the, the original Seinfeld crew must be. That's... Yeah, I think I'd be curious if they kept in touch or the degree to which they keep in touch. If there, if there's like a Seinfeld group chat, oh, there's a group chat. Just... Oh, there's a group chat. There's an email chain. There's yeah. an email chain. There's an email chain that Jerry hates, but Larry, but Larry keeps it going because he knows that Jerry hates it. <laughs> Absolutely. For those of you who don't know, Seinfeld started as a stand-up comedian, and he's continued to do stand-up throughout his career. Prior to the start of Seinfeld in 1989, he delivered what became a very famous stand-up routine. And the person that introduced him is now the late Carl Reiner. Reiner, it's so funny, Mayor, that the two of us are talking about and, and discussing the life of, of Reiner because just a week ago, we were celebrating the birthday of Mel Brooks, a, a longtime friend of Reiner's for, uh, for 60 years. They did the 2,000-year-old man. Uh, them and Norman Lear as a trio remain the best of friends. Just a quick thing about Reiner. In addition to being the father of actor, writer, and director Rob Reiner, 
Um, Ratner was a penultimate 20th century Jewish comedian, created the Dick Van Dyke show, was known for his sort of slapstick style of, of comedy, was always funny. And CBS Sunday Morning Today, Norman, they did a Zoom call with Norman Lear and, and uh, Dick Van Dyke separately, and they were each talking about the Reiner that they knew and loved. And Lear said that one of the things that kept both him and Reiner going, both loved to get up in the morning, and they wanted to get up in the morning. And the amount of humor that they infused into their lives, uh, Lear understood as a tool of his longevity. Dick Van Dyke said that one of the things that Reiner taught Van Dyke, both as a friend and mentor, and one of the ways Reiner lived his life, was that he never really grew up. And that Reiner understood above all that an adult is nothing more than a kid wearing a costume. Mm. And how do we wear that costume? And what do we have to do in order to get to where we want to go? All of that sort of playing and just doing it to get through, that's what being an adult is. And Reiner remained a kid at heart. And I, the way in which Van Dyke said that really resonated with me. Right. It's also interesting. I'm just looking at Carl Reiner's uh, Instagram and it seemed like he was pretty active or somebody was helping him be active. And his last post was actually him wishing Mel a happy birthday. And it's a picture of both of them in their old age, hanging out. He says, happy birthday to my best friend of 70 years, dinner partner, my fellow Jeopardy watcher, and the funniest man alive, Mel Brooks. With that, we, we keep it going, right? As Carl yeah. would have Yes, absolutely. And now we're moving on to the segments on our show, starting with the Diaspora Report. The Diaspora Report is where we jump into different headlines around the world about Judaism, about Israel, anything in the diaspora, and even inside Israel. We don't care. It's the report of the diaspora because we are in the diaspora. I don't even have to explain that, so I did it anyways. On first tap, we have a very fun story out of the streets of Tel Aviv as the... <laughs> Now, let's try to keep it together for this one. The UN peacekeeping unit has been in Israel since 1947, or really 1948, after the partition plan. And for those of you who aren't familiar, hate to cut you off, for those of you who aren't familiar, UN stands for Universal Linux. Yes. Yeah. And also the United Nations, but what Isaac said. So the UN has been in Israel mostly, they, they're based out of Jerusalem, and they're there to keep the peace. They've done a great job. And... One of the ways that I think this emphasizes and this epitomizes their entire presence in Israel since they, since they stepped foot, since they brought their cars, and it's very important I remember that they brought their cars because over the weekend, in one of their UN-marked cars, two UN officials, so these are employees of the United Nations, or sorry, what was it? University of Nudniks? U- Universal Nudniks. Universal Nudniks. <laughs> They were caught on tape in the middle of traffic in Tel Aviv on Allenby Street with, sorry, they were caught on tape in the middle of Tel Aviv on Allenby Street having sex in the back of a car. This video is on the internet. You can watch it. The Times of Israel reported it. And it's just, <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, in the video, they, yeah. Part of the course. What's that? It's par for the course. I mean, what do you expect from... 
know, when the bar is set so low for an organization that had so much promise and so much funding, and Ted Turner gave a billion dollars to the UN, what, 10, 15 years ago? This is how they're spending their time? Yep. I mean, they, after the Lebanon war in 2006 with, between Israel and Hezbollah, a unit of the UN was sent to keep the peace. And about two years ago, we found an entire channel of tunnels that Hezbollah was building in northern Israel into the Golan, into the northern regions of Israel. And the only people that were there all the time was the UN. You almost have to wonder, did they help them? I don't know. I don't want to make any assumptions, but eh. uh, safe to yeah. I mean, the rules and regulations, just like very briefly, and this yeah. goes beyond the UN's presence in the Middle East or in Israel. But I don't know if you're familiar, Mayor, with all the strict guidelines with with regard to when the UN can fire their weapon. Mm, mm, no. All the different boxes that need to be checked off in order for the UN to use the state-of-the-art equipment that they have. I mean, it, it'll just, you know, it'll make your toes curl, just all the situations they've been in, like what they need to see and the way that it needs to be seen in order for them to physically intervene. I mean, yeah. So all we have is lasting UN peace treaties with, with the word peace in quotation marks. Yeah. We'll definitely get into more about yeah. real, you know, yeah. honest conversations about the UN. But I think this was a great, I mean, it just, it epitomizes who they are by us. The first yeah. time we bring them up is a video of their employees having sex in the middle of the street in the, at like 6 p.m. I have to ask, did the UN, uh, did they release a statement? Yeah they, yeah, they suspended them. They're looking into it. But, you know, in the same article in Times of Israel, you, you see that, this isn't the first time that they abuse their power and their presence in places. These people are being paid to do nothing. It's like these, every country for the most part is able to keep the peace, especially a country like Israel. On a more serious note, we are closely following the annexation conversation. We want to keep you, our listeners posted. And so we just have a, just a quick rundown of events as they happened over the week since we last spoke. So it was supposed to occur on July 1st. Now it's supposed to happen sometime in July. Key Israeli allies such as the United Kingdom have come out and said that they are against the move. The U.S. has been strangely quiet, keeping their distance, saying and maintaining their position that they are going to approve a solution that both sides agree on which, as everyone knows, is really, really hard to do. Benny Gantz, the leader of the Blue and White Party, that is the coalition major party that united with Likud, the right-wing government, to create a government in Israel. And he's also the defense minister. He's drawn back his outright support. In general, people have been very critical of Benny Gantz. He's not really a tenured politician. Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, who broke off their ties in 2007 and absolutely hate each other probably more than they hate Israel, they had a press conference over the weekend where they got together and they said they're going to unify in opposition to the deal of the century and to annexation. In that press conference, Israeli Arab Minister of Knesset, that is the Israeli parliament, Ayman Ode, attended the press conference in Ramallah. So how do we feel about that? We're talking about a press conference where a Hamas official from Beirut, from Lebanon, he actually called in. Hamas was present. 
it's not like it was the moderate Palestinian Authority. We're talking about Hamas, an outright terrorist organization whose only goal is to destroy Israel. And a member of the Israeli government was at this press conference and he, and he afterwards, he said it was very important to be there. It's about ending the occupation. So Isaac, how do, how do you feel about Ayman Oda's presence? Is it okay? I mean, freedom of expression, freedom of presence. What, how do we feel about it? Well, if Ayman Oda was a private citizen of the region and had a personal relationship with Hamas officials and wanted to show up and observe and give his viewpoint, that would be one thing, but that's not what he was doing. He went as a member of the, you know, a member of the Knesset. Two days ago, Knesset member Benzal, um, forgive me for butchering this name, Smotrich. Yeah, Smotrich, he requested the dismissal of Ode from the Knesset, yeah, after Ode participated at this Fatah Hamas press conference uh, this past Thursday. I mean, no, his actions are absolutely uncalled for. He, I mean, he should step down. I mean, especially when Israel has been somewhat behind the curve with regards to rolling out the public plans. I mean, who knows how this will impede uh, geopolitical progress in the region. I mean, and, I mean, not to mention on a very primal level, who, who negotiates with terrorists? Right. And it, to me, it's, I'm, I'm disappointed. You know, I follow Ayman Ode on Twitter. He, over the election, over the three elections that happened in Israel uh, re, over the last year and a half, he seemed like a more moderate Palestinian-Israeli voice. He seemed like he really wanted to change the way that, Arab, that the conversation was from the Arab-Israeli side. He wanted to sort of be that guy that was the bridge. He was born in Haifa. He's Israeli. He's been in the government for a while. He leads the joint list. And it's a guy like him that's really going to be at the forefront of peace. It's not going to be the Palestinian Authority. It's not going to be Hamas. It's going to be Ayman Ode. So for Ayman Ode to, to go to this event, it makes me lose faith. I'm disappointed. I agree with you. He should at least be suspended, at least for traveling to Ramallah in the middle of coronavirus. We're trying to, you know, we're trying to limit movement and, and you're going to an area, you know? So, I mean, like I said, I'm disappointed. Uh, hopefully there is some action taken against him or at least he understands where someone like Betsalo is coming from. And for all intents and purposes, Betsalo is considered on the hard right of the Israeli government. He will most always have a position like this against him. He kind of is like using it to his advantage. On to depressing news of a different and you know, perhaps more dangerous time, depending how, how you look at it. There was a recent article in the New York, in the, actually it was an article in the Sunday Times today of the elite German military units, which holds the abbreviation KSK, um, has, has been infiltrated by neo-Nazi members and members of the radical far right. Now, for some context, in 2015, Angela Merkel and Ger German parliament agreed to take in over a million refugees following the, refugee, the Syrian refugee crisis. And she got a lot of pushback for that. And a lot of anti people who are anti-immigrant, but with a more sort of racialized lens, 
you know, their platforms were elevated. And that segued into the classic forms of anti-Semitism that Germany has fought so hard to extinguish from its society ever since the end of World War II. The fact that the most elite German military unit has been infiltrated by members of, uh, uh, by neo, by, by neo-Nazi members is beyond troubling. The fact that they don't know how to put a halt to it is even more troubling. The political party that the alternative for, Deut for Deutschland, uh, abbreviated ATD, you see the presence of people who subscribe to anti-Semitic and neo-Nazi thought rise to the ranks of this party. Thank God, uh, AFD does not have a majority in Parliament by any means, but their support has only increased in the past five years. I mean, the, the German Parliament, the Bundestag, they just came out with an outright declaration against the, the moves that Israel's trying to make in the West Bank. And you know, Germany historically has been a strong ally of Israel, so that's just another ally who, you know, but they're also, it's, it's not that we're, it's not that you and I are, are supporting it and we're, we're like, oh, Germany, why are you against it? It's that the, for a government to single out Israel when there's other territorial disputes all over the world, it's, it's weird. It's, yeah. And that doesn't, go to say, that doesn't go to say that what Israel's doing is wrong. It's just like, if you're going to, oh, we're, if we're calling out as a government, we're calling out territorial disputes, let's, let's do all territorial disputes. No? There, I absolutely agree with the double standard that you, that's at play that you're, that you're getting at. But the, just to finish. Uh, yeah, sorry. My thoughts on this. I'm obsessed with Israel. Obsessed. The, relationship, the, the relationship between KSK, neo-Nazis, and the far-right political party alternative for Deutschland is very problematic. Yeah. And, you know, we look forward to bringing you, albeit unfortunate, uh, ongoing updates of the political the political dynamics in Germany as they unfold. Very, very troubling indeed. Sorry, I didn't mean to make I didn't mean to sound uh, facetious. Isaac, I'm taking this very seriously. Okay? Absolutely. New segment alert? New segment alert, yes. <laughs> yeah. Who needs editing? I mean you got your mouth. Oh, that reminds me. This episode is brought to you by Our Mouths. Our Mouths were kind enough to reach out over the weekend, on Shabbat nonetheless. <laughs> hey, we'd love to sponsor the show, and, and uh, we just love your show. We love what's going on, Mayor's Mouth. Isaac, did your mouth have anything to say? Absolutely. I got a phone call from All Things Oral the other day, and they are very proud to sponsor today's podcast. And they were really, really into our new segment, which is, who's the most influential Jew? Yeah. So this is a part this is a, today's influential Jew topic is in sports. Earlier today, I was on a podcast called Halftime Snacks with my good friend, Ronan Einbinder. You can find Halftime Snacks on Spotify, on iTunes. Halftime Snacks is a show that talks about sports, technology, and business. And Ronan wanted to talk about the history of Jews in sports and the history of Jewish organizations that 
devoted themselves to sports, such as Maccabi, Hapoel, Beitar, and their connection to early Zionism and how the political ideologies of these different groups actually influenced the way that they played and they continue to influence today. At the end of the show, Ronan asked me, Mayor, who do you think is the most influential Jew in sports? And I had to stop and think, and I realized I have a bias because I love baseball. And immediately when he asked me, I thought Hank Greenberg. But then I also, saw, I also thought Sandy Koufax. But then I realized it's Hank Greenberg. Hank Greenberg played during the 30s and 40s for the Detroit Tigers. He's known as the first ever Jewish superstar. He still holds the record for most RBIs in a season. He played 154 games that season. At the same time, if you look up Jews in sports, the Wikipedia page is huge. But then the only people I could think about were baseball players, Ryan Braun, Ian Kinsler, uh, Jock Peterson. What is it about Jews in baseball? And also, who do you think is the most influential Jew in sports? Great question. I want to start off before I politely disagree with your choice of Hank Greenberg. I want to sort of give my take as to why key Jewish athletes are found in baseball as opposed to other sports. One, I think the relationship between baseball and the rise of America, baseball leading America instead of following it, following it to paraphrase that John Thorne quote, the Major League Baseball's historian. Green, you know, Greenberg you know, took a couple of years off to fight in World War II, but before he did that, he made a statement saying, every home run I hit is a home run against Hitler. Mm. And for Jews everywhere, that was huge. That was huge. The, the relationship between Jews and American culture, this idea of Jews being champions of integration, Baseball champing integration before the lunch counter, before schools were desegregated, before Brown v. Board of Education. This idea of baseball as an agent of social progress and reform, I think is one of the reasons why athletes of any kind, but star athletes in baseball, get a lot of attention. If you look at Jewish athletes across the board, obviously Mark Spitz, the greatest Olympic swimmer before Phelps. Stoudemire converted to Judaism. Hmm. But as far as prominent Jewish basketball players are concerned, I'd be hard-pressed to name many off the top of my head. There is one. His name is Denny Avdia. He is a top five pick in last year's draft. He's actually going to play for the New York Knicks. And he is a half-Serbian, half-Israeli basketball player who is being spoken about as a future star in the NBA. His dad was a Serbian Muslim star who moved to Israel to play basketball, married a Jewish basketball star woman, and they had a son. His name is Denny. Denny had the opportunity to play for either Serbia or Israel in the recent FIBA championships, under 20 championships. He chose Israel, led them to a championship, and is poised to become a star. So it's exciting. Absolutely. Obviously, recently in the world of gymnastics, we have Ali Riesman. Wait, but wait, who's, yeah. your, who's your player? I would say Koufax. Koufax. What makes him any different than Hank? Well, I, I think he played a more difficult position than Hank. 
if you look at the trajectory of Kofax's career, we're not talking about we're not talking about the best Jewish player. We're talking about the most influential. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons why Kofax has been more influential than Greenberg is because Kofax is still alive, and I think the nature of someone's legacy depending on how influential they were during their lifetime, can tend to wane if up against someone who was prolific in their own rights and continues to be prolific in life. Okay. I mean, you know, if we're talking about Kofax, we have to mention game one of the 1965 World Series in which he chose to sit out. Hank uh, also did that, by the way. Nobody talks about that. Hank set out for Yom Kippur as well. Well, and one of the interesting things, oh, that reminded me something. So the difference between, and maybe actually, maybe I can see defeat on this one, because it just occurred to me that Kofax did not go to services on that day. Hank was in Greenberg did. Hank went to school. And Greenberg did. And everyone stood up. Hank went to school. Right. And then the next day, the next game, game two, Greenberg hit like three or four home runs. And, yeah. and, the, and just in and the outfield, baby. And the local newspaper the following day read Happy New Year in Yiddish oh. as the banner headline. If anyone has a copy of that. Send it over. Yeah. Send it over. Wow, I didn't know that. Any, it might, any, actually, it might, have been, it might have been Happy New Year in Hebrew, but still, it's, the significance is there. It's not very different. <laughs> so, yay, Hank. If you want to catch the full conversation with Ronan and I, go on over to Halftime Snacks in Spotify and Apple Podcasts and let us know what you thought. Is it Ronan and I? Me and Ronan? No. It's the former, Ronan and I. Ronan and I. Moving on to our next segment, our deep dive. Do, do, do. On today's deep dive, we're going to discuss American aid to Israel. Hmm. Quick historical context. <clears throat> when Israel was founded in 1948, Harry S. Truman was a big supporter. He was a big friend of Israel and the Jews, mostly to get reelected, but whatever, that's fine. But by the time Israel was, you know, churning in the 50s, struggling and everything that it needed, it did not have the best relationship with the president that followed Truman, who was Dwight D. Eisenhower. Eisenhower held back weapons. He was not supportive of the 1956 Sinai campaign. And the relationship that we now know, that we know today between Israel and America and the U.S. really started with Kennedy and then Lyndon B. Johnson and culminating with Richard Nixon. Thanks a lot in part to Golda Meir and Abba Eban, Yitzhak Rabin, major Israeli politicians who knew how to communicate with America. They knew that they needed to position themselves as being on America's side against the Soviet Union in the Cold War. By the time the 80s and 90s and early 2000s rolled around, Israel and America were definitely on the same side on the war against terror on the war against Iraq and Iran and the threats that we still see to this day. And all of this is to say that in 2020, we're talking about a major budget that the U.S. gives to Israel, mostly in weapon credits, that 
to an extent, in my opinion, makes Israel almost dependent on the U.S. for the weapons and to make decisions, such as we're seeing right now with the annexation moves. And I believe that Israel is actually strong enough to cut back some of the aid, but they're afraid to. In my opinion, they should begin to slowly cut it back. But I think, Isaac, you disagree. Yeah, I do. I, I don't think that the aid should be cut back in the slightest. I mean, to add to the context that Mayor just articulated, Israel is the number one recipient of aid from the U.S. since, uh, since World War II. Or rather, the U.S. hasn't given to anyone as much as they've given to Israel since World War II. The aid that ramped up under Nixon beginning in 1971 has largely continued in a similar form, I, I think, until... Uh, 2004, 2006. I think 2006 was when a new agreement was signed, and that still carries over to this day. And right now, we have a very interesting, precarious, and mind you, a bit problematic situation with Trump as president. But as far as aid to Israel is concerned, I mean, I don't think Israel needs to answer to anyone uh, with this current government. I mean, we've seen time and time again Netanyahu sort of walk over Netanyahu. Sorry, no, no. We've seen Netanyahu walk over Trump geopolitically with regards to, you know, what Israel thinks is in its best interest. And I think that, furthermore, there's a difference between aid and dependence. So aid, the aid that's gone to Israel, I think, has contributed to its low unemployment, to its emerging GDP, to the proliferation and strength of Iron Dome, to the Mossad. And I think that those things are all very, very necessary. And obviously someone who has a much more expansive understanding of Israel and history than I do doesn't have to, I don't have to reel off incidences in which those things have become very effective. However, even though I don't believe the age should be cut back because I think it serves as an uh, important uh, symbolic principle, I don't think that Israel is entirely financially dependent. I mean, I think they're, they're pretty self-sufficient. I think, and I think Israel's self-sufficiency is much greater now than it was before Oslo. Yeah. And I think, that's, I think that's what I'm trying to get at is that, and I'm not trying to say cut it completely because God forbid Israel is to an extent, it needs it, like you mentioned, for the Iron Dome and for other sorts of weapons. And, you know, as a beacon of democracy in the Middle East or, or of true democracy in the Middle East, let me fix that it's more it's more the fact that and you saw this a lot especially in the prelude to the Yom Kippur war where Israel had the opportunity Israel was caught blindsided by that war and everybody agrees that even though Israel ended up winning the war it lost because of how many soldiers were killed and because of the intelligence that failed Israel had the opportunity to preemptively strike Syria and Egypt the same way they did in 1967, and they held back because the United States told them not to do it. So that's what I mean by, yes, Israel is sufficient and obviously an independent nation, but what does it say about those instances where America gets to almost decide Israeli policy, number one, and number two, what does it say about the Israel, anti-Israel folks that say, oh, look, Israel's just an extension of the U.S. It's another state. Why are we giving them so much money? I don't even, I have no, I'm a non-Jewish citizen of the United States of America. Why would I be, and I actually don't even support Israel. 
Why are my tax dollars going to that country? And then my response to that is, and while I understand and respect that this is not a way of furthering my point, I want, I'd like to see your out, the history of your outrage with, with other sort of geop, geopolitical matters. You know, did you raise Cain over the United States borrowing billions from China to give to Saudi Arabia for oil? Did you, did, you know, I mean, the whole idea of foreign aid. Yeah, yeah don't get mad about foreign aid to one country. You gotta get mad about foreign aid as a, as a concept. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we should begin the conversation when we've established all the other foreign aid you're against or where you stand on that. Right. And then in relation to, we can, you know, in relation to the size of the aid package that's being given, we can then talk about uh, Israel. I'm, ab- I'm absolutely open. Don't, don't get it confused or twisted. I have no qualms about discussing or even decreasing the um, amount of aid i'm open to discussing that but i'm not open to having that conversation until other conversations are had and i also don't think it's the issue that the mainstream media makes it out to be right no yeah i think i think for the most part we agree and yeah so we're wrapping up here we are on to our fan favorite segment Bubby's Delights, where we bring in a, we're on to our fan favorite segment, Bubby's Delight, where we bring in a different, uh, we bring in a different delicacy that Bubby made right before the recording began. It's unbelievable. She's, she's so good at that, isn't she? And today, on my end, we have some Bamba. The... The solution to peanut allergies is Bamba. Parents, young parents out there, if you've got a baby coming, start feeding them this from the second they're out of the womb and you will never have peanut allergies in your life. Like we did last time, we're going to rate it. I'll go first. Mm. One out of ten. One bite. Wow. So good. And, you know, today I'm really happy to to bring back my Bubby's favorite Russian dollars licorice. It's incredible. It's really amazing. You know, I got it 20 days ago, and we're going to see if it retains its freshness. It's we're really going to see if Isaac ever has anything else to provide at Bubby's Delight. Ah, delicious. Who would ever eat anything else? Incredible. I didn't get to read my, my delight. Oh. You gave it, what, a seven? No, this is like a nine. Like, what, nine? Here's a little pro tip. Grab the bomba, find yourself some onion Beasley, the, the ring one. Get a cup of nice Coke, Coca-Cola, that is. You put the Beasley in the bomba ring. You eat it together. You take a sip of the Coke, and then you, you send me a DM. Tell me how much you enjoyed that. And to, to be clear, this is uh, it's Israeli Coke, not, not American Coke, with, uh, with natural sugar, right? Yes. Yeah, it's a beautiful set. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for tuning in to our second episode of the On Disney and Jewish History Podcast, The Two Tall Jews Show. Make sure to subscribe if you're watching us on YouTube. Turn those notifications on. Don't forget to follow the main account, On Disney and Jewish History. If you're listening to us on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere where you catch podcasts, please rate the show, 
leave a comment, let us know how we did. And thank you. See you next week. Thank you. Have a good week. Take care. Uh, come on. Give, 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 be a little nicer. Give Have a good week. Yeah, yeah, there you go. All right. Thank you.